episode 41 of Literary Disco, Dr. Sleep. In this Halloween-themed episode for our show, we will begin with a scary bookshelf revisit, in which Todd, Julia, and I will each pick the scariest book or story we've ever read and discuss. And after mentioning him in many an episode, we will finally tackle Stephen King head-on when we discuss his latest novel, Dr. Sleep. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello, Hello. sir. We all just saw each other, actually. We should we should not pretend that we don't know this about the world. Does, but does everyone know that Ryder got married? I, I saw it in People magazine. I think everyone knows <laughs> that Ryder got married. Did you guys hear that um, the officiant was his novelist pal, Todd Goldberg? I, I prefer novelist chum. That's what I've gotten tattooed on my tramp stamp. <laughs> uh, you know, actually, what we should take a moment to discuss is that one of us is currently on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, that's true. Uh, Todd, we have not mentioned this fact at all, but Todd wrote a remarkable essay that was selected for the Best American Essays 2013, edited by Cheryl Strayed, who we love and we've discussed on this show before. So if you guys haven't read this essay um, and you think Todd is all uh, fucktard jokes, <laughs> you will be pleasantly surprised. It's a brilliant essay. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Me. I'm very excited about it. And right, yeah. so this week it is on the New York Times bestseller list, the best American essays are. And so I was looking at the list last night or two nights ago, and uh, what I found out is that for the first time in my life, I'm superior to Malcolm Gladwell. Enjoy this brief moment. <laughs> me and the 25 other people in the book, and I, I, have, I have no uh, belief that people are actually buying the book in record numbers because of my sad little essay, but I'm going to take the glory for what it is. All right, so... Moving on from weddings and essays, let's talk about some of the scariest things we've ever read. So we wanted to do a Halloween theme for our revisit. Um, who wants to go first? Okay. Well, I had a struggle with this one, guys. Um, because, as you know, I was terrified by Interstellar Pig as a child. Right. Um, if you guys right. haven't heard that story, which I will not retell, I told it in episode zero. So go back and listen to it. Um, but then... Um, so I, I basically have two answers. I have the scariest book I read as a child and the scariest book I've read as an adult because I think those are two wildly different emotions. Yes, um, absolutely. So I'll do adult first sure. because um, I'm sure it's something you guys have all read. And it's very recent, actually. Um, I think that it's really, really hard to scare an adult with a book. And there's all kinds of Stephen Kingy answers I could give. But um, I think I was most scared in the last few years by reading the walking dead graphic novels i was really really scared because you get that feeling of the images of a very scary movie and the shock of being scared by a comic book which is not something that i expected i mean weirdly i felt like a comic book is so far removed from any reality that you can buy into that it wouldn't actually be scary or horrifying (laughs) I, i remember that when i was reading it I started to, like, squint my eyes as if I was watching a horror movie. <laughs> and I was like, I'm reading a book. I can just look away. <laughs> so I, I would read, like, a couple of frames and then be so horrified that I would, you know, basically take myself out of the book. So that was very scary for me. And I had – it's hard for me to separate because I also watched the show and had absolutely life-endingly horrifying nightmares. But then I continued to watch it, and um, now I really like it. So, um, 
I, I, I like being scared and I like to power through being scared and the uh, Walking Dead comics really um, were scary for me. For me, they they don't scare me, but they fill me with this existential dread. Yeah. Because you mm-hmm. just never know when somebody else is going to get killed and somebody that you love. So for me, The Walking Dead is exhausting. It's just this endless series. And, and I'm also disgusted. I'm repulsed. Yeah. You know, yeah. because yeah. the art is so um, gross. It's so gross. There's always zombies and they're always eating people. But it's also violent. The way humans are to other humans, the way they kill each mm-hmm. other is with baseball bats. And so there are moments when I've been reading The Walking Dead where I I am chilled to the bone. It's not really fear, though. Just feeling like the world is is always going to let me down, <laughs> and that any one of these people Jesus is going to die. God. It is no, well, I because totally they agree. kill people. I should probably left read right. this. I, I've not I've not read a single. Oh, walk you have dead. to. It's way more intense than the show. The show's good, but the the comic book is is much more willing to just kill off your favorite character. Yes, without any sense of justice. A really dark view of the world. I mean, the, yeah. The, there was a moment, and I think they might have done this on the show, but there's a moment in the comic when Rick, the main character, gives this speech about how they are the walking dead, the mm-hmm. people that are still alive. And you realize that that's the theme of the whole comic book and, and, and the series is just that the true horrible zombie people are the ones who are still alive because what we're willing to do to one another. Right. And that is just, it's so dark. And it's way darker than the show. It, it really is. Been. And I will, I totally agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the reason I'm scared is that like dread and gruesomeness scares me but what's great about the walking dead is that comic books are perfect for the form because they never end so they're still being written so there's no sense of like well this person is a main character so they're gonna have an arc that i'm aware of you know what i mean like any characters can Mm -hmm. can be phased out or phased in um for a long time and the ongoingness of it is this is a huge statement, but it's like of all the um, literary forms that we read, it's the closest to life because it just ends when it ends. It doesn't have a built-in structure that you're expecting to end. You can't say, well, there's only 200 pages left or I'm in the last 10 pages, so they're going to resolve this. Like there's no feeling of re- resolution ever, just this like endless marching towards huh. the deaths of all these characters. Right. and. Which is why it's such a perfect, perfect. form for that story, too. Exactly. Because it's about survival, and it's about yeah. endurance, and maintaining hope against all odds. Exactly. And just, it's a perfect form for it. I love so it. So the second half of my thing is that I did want to say, like, the fear that I have experienced as an adult is nowhere close to a whole bunch of scary books that I read as a child and, um, and that were read to me. So scary stories that you tell in the dark or whatever, those horrible illustrated stories, so terrifying. Um, <laughs> but the one... the. The time I think I've been the most scared by literature was this book that I read when I was about 10 or 11 called The Dollhouse Murders. And it was about, you know, totally a YA book, but, a you know, so scary. It was about this girl who had a dollhouse and she, like, played with the figures. But, like, in the night they would move into this uh, position. Uh, yeah, they would move into uh, a position of a I don't murder like that, that shit. happened in her house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that Which gives me, me the, that that's gave a me great the story, though. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Why hasn't that been made into a movie? That's great. I don't know, but it was terrifying. So the dolls would like, but she would never see them move. Like she would just wake up oh. and they'd be in this position where one was like drowning in the bathtub. I, I oh, don't even that. remember the specific murders. I just remember her being like. And there were murders scared. that had happened in the house that she was in? Or? Yes, the house was a replica of her own house. Oh, uh, God, it was so scary. 1992, That's The Dollhouse Murders, a TV movie. <laughs> yes. they made it. They made a TV movie out of it. 
Um, but yeah, I was so scared by that. Anything where movement is happening yeah. off screen, quote unquote, yep. so scary. Yep. Same Fuck with that. the topiaries in the original Shining, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Or the, the weeping angels in Doctor Who that move. Oh, fuck oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. that. I I don't like any of that inanimate object shit that moves around. Chucky, any of that shit. Fuck that. We've just earned our, our, our rating on, on uh, iTunes. I think we earned it long ago. Oh, my God. All right, God. what do you got, Todd? What do you got? Well, like you, Julia, um, I've got two, or actually maybe three faces. The shit that scared me as a child. And also the stuff that scares me as an adult. So the stuff that scares me as an adult, uh, like you, Julie, I have that same issue with I just I don't get scared very well in books anymore that are fiction because I see the artifice in it and, you know, I'm not scared of monsters in books. The books that scare me the most are true crime nonfiction. So, mm, Oh, my God, you're so right. Devil in the White <laughs> City, Columbine, those two books scared me more as a human being in the last 10 years than anything else because... It goes into, you know, the, the, the walking dead, as it were, that could be keeping people in their basement and killing them right now or going to go into a school and kill a bunch of people. That I find horrifying because it's, it's you know, impossible to predict. And it's not something that turns into um, a giant spider and eats the city. And it's not a clown holding balloons or whatever. One of the other facets of my fear of, of real life things is that when I was a kid, I was scared to death of the TV show In Search Of which was this 30-minute documentary show hosted by Leonard Nimoy that would go through ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot and all that stuff. You can see all the episodes on, on YouTube still. And there was this one episode in specific about, you know, are ghosts real? And they, you know, told this story about some Edwardian ghost that would show up places, and I can still, to this day, see the clip in my head of this, you know, <laughs> ghost that, you know, was standing in a window. And that scared me so bad, I had to run out of the room as a kid. And I, I haven't found it yet on YouTube, but I'm sure it's there. So there's that sort of stuff really freaked me out as a kid. And I still get freaked out by, like, if it's, like, 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm in bed and there's one of those godforsaken ghost hunter shows on TV, I, I watch it and I'm like, oh, this is stupid. And then I think, but what if it's true? And then I think, and what if they know that I'm scared? And therefore, they're now about oh to come into God. the house. And I go through that whole sort of what-if scenario of, oh, my God, what if there is the devil? And I'm like, oh, I just have to, you know. It, Wait it's, a minute. You have, so you haven't picked one book. Have, do you have one? Yeah. I mean, Columbine yeah. or uh, I, I would say, Devil in the White? I would say Devil in the White City because I have a yeah. real fear of that whole being held captive progress. underneath the house and the progress and, <laughs> of, and I'm uh, terrified of Greek Roman inspired architecture. The the book that scared me the most as a kid though, without a doubt, is Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery oh, yeah. and well actually it's a tie. Pet Cemetery by Stephen King and uh, Ghost Story by Peter Straub. So Pet Cemetery we've probably talked about before. Peter Straub's Ghost Story, I think it came out in maybe nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine. And it's about this group of old men who tell ghost stories to each other. And then a young man moves into uh, the city and they, there's a murder involved and they try to figure out, you know, who did it. And it turns out there's this old woman who's existed through time and has always been. So it sort of has a parallel to Dr. Sleep in that regard. And Peter Straub and, and Stephen King, I, I think, are, are old friends. Um, and so, they wrote together. And they worked together, yeah. They wrote The Talisman together. The Talisman. Uh, but Ghost Story really scared the shit out of me. Pet Cemetery scared the living shit out of me. I could not sleep in the same room with that book when I was a kid. It, it seems absurd to me now, 
but but that was the key. And and you know the other thing about those books is that I like my fear of Pet Cemetery and my fear of also The Shining in general as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think also some of it has to do with the time and place in which I read them and what was going on in my life and all that other stuff too, aside from the horror of the books, because I can, you know, I have sense memory of reading those books of where I was and what was going on in my life. And that, that plays a role too. Cause I remember being, you know, a, a particularly bad time in my childhood on top of everything else. So it, it, it sort of ties in, but the shining and the pet cemetery, I would, take it out of my bedroom and put it in the family room, which is all the way down the hall at the other side of the house. And then I could go to bed. The shining scared the shit out of me too. And I had a lot of trouble thinking about this episode, thinking of non Stephen King books. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just so owns the horror genre yeah. um, that it was really difficult to even consider other things. Well, Dean Koontz's bad hair piece also scared me quite a bit growing up. Um, that, that was a, a point of horror. So there's that. Well, here's the weird thing for me. I don't get scared by books. I read all of this stuff when I was a kid. I read, so I started with Edgar Allan Poe, actually. I remember reading The Telltale Heart at a very young age, and I loved it, but I wasn't scared by it. I just loved the idea, and I loved the dark stuff. So I read all the Edgar Allan Poe stories, and then I read all the Stephen King books, and I loved them, but I was never, I don't remember being really scared the way that I was scared of movies and mm. The way mm-hmm. that I was, I think I'm a very auditory person. Like, I get very scared by my music, like horror movie music. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, yeah, it freaks me out. And, um, but there was. What, what you should that. all see fuck right now, that. ladies and gentlemen, is Ryder jump from his chair and, and pee just a little bit when I made uh, that's that noise. That's not true. That's right, it was a lot. There was one book that scared the piss out of me all the time. And for some reason, I was obsessed with it, but I didn't read it. I listened to an audiobook for some reason. My parents thought it was a good idea to get seven-year-old Ryder the audio tape version of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And when it got dark, they went to bed. The boy fell asleep almost at once. But in the middle of the night, a sound awakened him. It was something out in the street. It was a voice, and it was calling to him. Where is my toe? <laughs> See, that's the scariest thing you've ever heard. It still scares me. When the boy heard that, he got very scared. But he thought, it doesn't know where I am. It will never find me. Then he heard the voice once more. Only now it was closer. Where is my toe? It groaned. The boy pulled the blankets over his head and closed his eyes. I'll go to sleep, he thought. When I wake up, it will be gone. But soon he heard the back door open. And again he heard the voice. Where is my toe? Oh, God. It's so scary. That's fucked up. Why was that a children's book? That was not a children's book. They shouldn't have done that. The the first story in the collection is called The Big Toe, and it's about a kid who finds a toe in his backyard, and then um, he eats it with his family, and then he goes to bed at night, and he's lying in bed, and he hears the voice coming back and asking for its toe back and it gets closer and closer and it's just this there's music and the guy's voice narrating it is so fucking terrifying and um you know so 
Alvin Schwartz, basically, he just compiled like the best scary stories from American folklore, and they all follow some some pretty similar patterns. And um, listening to them now or reading them now, it's interesting because what's what's great about them is their suspense and their sense mm-hmm. of. Um, and this is, I think, this is going to come into our discussion when we talk about Doctor Sleep and Stephen King in general, is that they use repetition. And they build suspense in a way that is so terrifying and sl- such a slow build. And actually, the payoff is usually not as good as the buildup. Um, in other words, when you find out what's actually happening, or in a lot of these scary stories that tell in the dark, in the, a lot of the stories in this collection, they just end with somebody going boo. You know, the narrator just right. says, and it's you and it like screams at you and right. it's, you know chills you but when you're listening to it as an audiobook it would actually work and as a kid it would freak the shit out of me but i used to listen to these things over and over and then i got more scares to tell in the dark on as a book form and i just really loved i love telling scary stories um and a lot of them follow that same pattern because i also remember there were stories we used to tell all the time around campfires like the golden arm did you guys ever know that one yes right? yes uh, yeah you, yes. you guys know who um has a very popular rendition no. of that. Mark Twain. Oh. oh. Do you guys know Janie, I Want My Liver Back? No. That's the same pattern. It's like a girl who's sent out to get liver for her mom, but then she spends the money on candy. So then she's walking home past oh. the graveyard and digs up somebody's liver and they eat it. And then that night, it's like, Classic. I want my liver back. And it like goes from room to room and it kills all her family until it comes to her. And you, But what's interesting too to me is like when I think about um, how many of these stories that I remember and that terrified me were a voice in the woods coming closer to you while you're stuck in bed. And while you're lying mm-hmm. there in bed, paralyzed with fear, this thing keeps getting closer and closer. And you just know it's coming. And it's about inaction. Nobody's actually doing anything. It's just getting closer to you. And I think um, it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, how when we go to sleep, our brain actually turns off our our bodies so that we don't act out our dreams. So when we're in deep REM right. sleep, we're we're physically paralyzed. We're not moving. It's a way for our bodies to prevent us from like thrashing around or sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. But what happens often to people, I'm sure you guys have had moments like this where you wake up and you can't move, mm-hmm. but you're you're mm-hmm. conscious and you're just still in the midst of a dream. And so if you notice a lot of ghost experiences that people have or hmm. alien visitation experiences happen while they're asleep or when they woke up in the middle of the night or when and it's because we're terrified by that experience when you wake up in the midst of a dream you're still in this dream state and you can't move and that's why like every alien ghost story involves like i just sat there and the ghost came towards me or the alien anally probed me or whatever it is but you can't do anything you're stuck not moving yeah and so a lot of you know so-called supernatural experiences are based on this awful in-between state that we a lot of us have had in the middle of the night. And I, I just think it's fascinating that these stories so often revolve around that kind of moment, you know, where you can't move and you're paralyzed in bed while a voice is coming closer and closer. Right. I, I think that that augurs the question, though, um, which is, have any of you ever had a supernatural or paranormal experience? No, Todd, because there's no such thing well, as ghosts. What are you, two? Well, a lot of people believe in it. I, I will say, before you guys start fighting, I, I, will, I will put out there, um, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but a lot of my family and friends do, and I do really enjoy hearing the stories and retelling them. 
Um, so here's here's one from the Pistel family archives. Um, my okay. when my aunt and uncle um, were young, they re- renovated a an, a really old farmhouse in Maine. It was like this huge mansion farmhouse, and it was just dilapidated shack, like Grey Gardens esque. Um, before they moved into it, but they moved into it and um, they fixed it up slowly over time. They had two kids. And when my cousin Kate was two, apparently they were sitting at um, the dining room table and, you know, she was a baby basically. And she like looked up and said in like a deep man's voice, I want to go home. And my aunt screamed at her, (laughs) then go. And then apparently she like dropped down and like fell asleep. And then after that was fine. So that's like a, a, Pastel family favorite. That momentary possession. Oh, in the oh in God. the dilapidated well, farmhouse. You like that one? It's a good story. It's a good story. That's a good yeah, one. I know. That's not bad. I, I've got a I've got a couple now. I want it to be known. I might have a touch of the shiny. <laughs> so w- let me ask you guys because we don't have all night to go over my my ghost one. history. Well, I have I have two best ones. I have one that happened to me when I was like seventeen, and one that happened to me just a few years ago. Which would you prefer? I'll do both. There was a period of time, and I've written about this before, so this won't be a surprise to anyone who's ever read anything of mine, where I was obsessed with Ouija boards, and I would play with them constantly by myself. And I would make my own Ouija boards. So there was one day I was at work. I worked for an advertising agency. This is when I was in high school. And I was bored out of my mind. I was stuck in a little office, and I just made a Ouija board, and I was asking it you know, important questions like, am I going to have sex on Tuesday? Um, things of that nature. And then the Ouija board just took over. And it was going around, and it kept going and spelling out, call my wife, call my wife, call my wife, call my wife. And I'm like, this is crazy. You know, what's going on? And mind you, I'm at the, the offices of Chapman Advertising in beautiful Palm Springs, California at this time. I'm like, well, what's your number? And it gave me a number and said, my name is David Lopez. Call my wife. And so I said, fuck it. And I called the number, and a woman answers the phone, and I said, this is going to sound crazy, but I was playing with the Ouija board, and it said I had to call David Lopez's wife, so I'm calling. And the woman on the phone said, "What? who are you? Why are you calling? Why is everyone calling me? And I said, I, I don't know anyone else who's calling you. I, I'm just telling you that I got this message on the Ouija board and said to call you. And the woman said, people have been calling me all day. This is not funny. My husband has been gone for a year. I don't need people to call me and tell me this. This is crazy. And she hung up on me. Wow. Did that really happen? That really happened. It gave you a number and you called it. So why haven't you busted out the Ouija board to, like, consult the afterlife for more experiences? It's too scary. But you have a conduit to the afterlife. Don't you want to... It's... It scared the it scared the living shit out of me. The the second thing is that my sister Linda's house is haunted, and oh when she bought it, it was filled with dream catchers. And when uh, you know when she's been there over the over the years, you know weird shit would happen. Like she'd put her wallet down on the counter, she'd turn around and be gone and be upstairs underneath the curtains, crazy shit like that. So one night I was spending the night there. I was staying upstairs in the loft, and her friends. Um, from England were staying downstairs and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night. So this is, you know, it's dubious. So I woke up in the middle of the night and I swear to God, there was a little girl sitting on a coffee table staring at me and it didn't scare me. 
I was just sort of like I woke up and I was looking at her and I just sort of said, okay, you know, that's weird and I'm going to go back to sleep. So I had that strange experience and I, I remember her vividly. She's wearing a yellow romper and she had blonde hair and she was maybe three years old in my, my vision. And so the next morning I go downstairs and I said, I had this crazy shit happen to me. This is what I experienced. And they were in the middle of a conversation, Linda and her two friends, where Cheryl, Linda's friend, was saying, oh, my God, I thought Phil was trying to wake me up. He kept tapping me on the shoulder and tapping me on the shoulder. And I was like, Phil, stop tapping me on the shoulder. And I sat up, and Phil had gotten out of bed and was sleeping on the floor. And I felt the presence of a little girl. Dun, 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 dun. And it was you. That one, I think, is ridiculous. <laughs> they Ouija are board? ridiculous. I'm, There's an explanation for Ouija, Ouija board. board. I'm just telling you I mean, my the fact that it happened when you were 17 and, like, obviously somebody was playing a prank on you. You're misremembering that, like, there were three other dudes sitting there holding the Ouija board with you at, at work. Why were you no, playing with an Ouija no, board I, by yourself I, I, I remember work, this. God? Does that make any sense? That because doesn't make I was any bored. sense. No, I you, remember you like don't remember it. Do you really believe in the infallibility of your memory about everything? No, of course not. You no. know that you misremember no. shit all the time. A phone number, or did it just say the name Lopez, and then you looked up Lopez in the no. phone book, and now you misremember this? I got five 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 no. four two seven one. I had to call it. <laughs> this is the greatest writer. <laughs> it wasn't like I found. A, it, it wasn't like I found a book and called the phone number, and it was my phone number. That <laughs> happened. <laughs> I can't. You actually believe in this shit? I'm just, I mean, I'm just telling on. you. You're a functioning adult in the I, world. I, I understand, like the good no, story hold on, aspect. Hold on. I, I don't necessarily believe. But come on, it's a I good story. I don't. Well, believe if you don't believe in ghosts. So why do you tell this like it's something that really happened? You have a great story. It's a good story. Well, but, because it happened but, to me. And what do you believe it, it is? It's not a mystical uh, experience. I, I believe there are things. Look, look, if you read, for instance, Mary Roach's book Stiff, there, she puts out a very interesting proposition about you know what are what what's the spirit world so if you've ever been to a place where a lot of people have died so if you've been to um a battleground or if you've been to um auschwitz or something there is a power that exists in a place what, where what do you talk there is a power and by what measure you feel it you feel you feel weight because you know you're at auschwitz that's why you feel it. <laughs> well, not you that I've ever been know there. It because okay, you right, like right. walk in and you have this psychic <laughs> feeling. But you know there there is there is a no, sense that sense? energy persists. What do you mean there you know, is? We are, when you it's what, what a do you law mean, what, of thermodynamics what, that energy persists that 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 we are made of electrons and neutrons. Yeah, so and what protons. does that have to do with consciousness? Those things don't stop. Well, they don't. It, yeah, it becomes I'm soil. I'm saying about energy. It, when you get buried, it becomes soil. That's yeah, it's soil that becomes vegetables. <laughs> but it's eat. still like what are you talking about? <laughs> like there's. <laughs> I'm just saying, weird shit happens. Has nothing unexplainable ever happened? No, but see, you're retreating from the act by just saying weird things happen. We'll never understand it. That is the definition of the dark ages. <laughs> that is why it's people died for centuries. Are you saying because that when, I when, killed the Jews? I'm saying that right around 1750-ish, people stopped thinking like you are, and we have things like penicillin and reality and science, and 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 now human beings Look, live a lot I, longer. I don't, There's a lot. I don't believe death. that the yeah, spirit world. Yeah, because if we world, keep believing in things believe, like superstition and, and mystical forces is. that we don't, we just have to throw up our hands and say Look, we can't understand Ryder, it. Just, just that's, because. That's, okay, stop, stop, stop. Just because you can talk without breathing doesn't mean you're right. <laughs>
If I may offer a compromising thought, is that... You may, provided it doesn't agree with Ryder. We have not reached the limits of science, especially when it comes to our own consciousness, the realm of sleep. Um, To get back to your earlier point, Ryder, and our own subconsciousness is something that we barely, barely, barely understand. So I'm not saying that Todd's not crazy. I'm just saying we don't know the depths and mechanisms of his insanity at the current historical well, that's moment. That's an interesting, that's an interesting way to put it. I call that fucking number. But I call that fucking yeah, but number. Saying that, we don't, we, that there's more to explore in the universe is very different than saying there's a little girl in a... Well, I think, okay. Hey, Weird, weird shit has happened subsequently. Lots of footsteps in the house. Lots of missing things that then turn up in weird places. Yeah, because people forget shit, Todd. <laughs> That's what okay. happens. I'm just saying, if you've ever, if you ever go to my sister's house, you're gonna, you're gonna have a sense. Number one, that you're not alone, and number two, that something oh evil God. lurks you, you in the crawl space beneath you, her stairs. There's the prevailing theory, or a theory, I don't know, is that there are two different you know, like ideas of ghosts. And one of them I think is a lot more likely than the other. Although I'm much more on Ryder's side than yours. Um, which is... Can we just say reality is on my side? Because can we just say that there has never been a single scientific proven instance of paranormal? That's why it's called paranormal. That's why it's supernatural. By definition, if you call something supernatural, it means it will never be explained by science or, or reality. Are, are you so saying, Ryder, no that orbs what? are not real? That orbs are yeah, not you, I mean, ghosts? Come on. Are, are you saying that you can't hear ghosts oh talking God. on... Um, on Recorders sometimes, oh, so if you play them backwards you're at the child. end of you're at the end child. of Purple Rain. And I love that you have this. <laughs> I love that you embrace the imagination of it. But come on, that's so condescending. Well, because you. it's a I great story. Like he tells great stories you. both times, but you know it's complete absurd. Well, listen. Like, so if I may put out my point, because we may have listeners that believe in this stuff, and they need to investigate that and think about that. <laughs> really think about what you believe in. Really question it. <laughs> Take a physics class. If you believe in the law of thermodynamics because Todd threw that term out, read a physics book and look it up. I don't think you'll read anything about ectoplasm in physics books. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you'll look, learn the law of thermodynamics. I, I think, recommend I think it's time you start measuring magnetic resonance around your house, electromagnetic fields. Ryder, I think you learn a lot about the world fields? if you just stepped into the reality that the ghosts are around you and they're dictating oh your decisions. God. I love these ghost hunter shows. They've been on for years now. Never yes, found anything. Those are real. They never find They're anything. Real. It's the most uh, awfully that's real. in that's... your face hey, manipulative been... bullshit. It's so offensive. It's and the fact that it's on Discovery Channel, like Discovery Channel should be ashamed of themselves. The History Channel does this bullshit now too, like the mermaids thing. It's uh, it's shameful. It's actually shameful. Julie did, Julie, did you have an opinion on on the true facts of ghosts among us? Yeah, I just wanted to put out there that there's two different ways that people believe in ghosts, um, and I'm not going to address mermaids, <laughs> vampires. Or anything no, like that. No, just just to be clear, <laughs> trolls. We all trolls are not real. Are right? Trolls don't exist. Okay. Um, all right. So the two ghost theories. Uh, all right. The ridiculous one, to me, is that there are people moving shit around, fucking with you, aware of you, all of that stuff. You know, c- trying to communicate with our world. I agree with Reiner in that that's ridiculous. However, some people believe that. Our human consciousness is aware of perceiving 
the past, like other parts of time, um, in a way that we're not currently aware of. So a lot of people think that you're just like seeing a glimpse into the past, um, by accident or for whatever reason. Um, I don't want to say it's because of energies or whatever, but I just want to say that there are two different, two wildly different ideas of ghosts. Um, how does the second one lead to any, anything active? Like, what does that mean? What can you do about that? You can't do anything. It's just like, I see, I saw a woman. So it's just a feeling. You're talking about an emotion. You're not talking about... No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's like, I saw someone walk through or, you know, like, I, like, remembered something or, like, had a thought when I was in a place because someone else did. That's really vague. But, you know, it's, it's just you're perceiving something in a passive way. You know what I mean? They're not saying, like, I need to communicate Here, with my here's, mom. Here's what we need to do to get definitive on this. I, I think we need to get Hans Holzer on the show, Psychic Investigator, and have him break it down for us. How about the Long Island Medium? I've been reading his work for many years, as both of you know, and I think he has some answers that could solve a lot of our, our ideas. Now, Ryder, how, how could you not know that after all these years of me extolling the virtues of Hans Holzer, Psychic Investigator, that... I walk in two worlds, the living and the unliving. And the unliving is you. <laughs> Welcome back to Literary Disco. Todd regaled Hi. us with uh, another Ouija board story, which I promptly ignored <laughs> while we were on hold. <laughs> You know what? It's going to be real funny in like 50 years when I'm dead and I come back a la Houdini through all our listeners' Ouija boards and I'm like, fuck you, Ryder. I'm back. Actually, the point was Houdini was disproving and kept saying he was going to come back and never did. Right. That's right. Yeah. He was trying to, he was a skeptic trying to prove that every psychic was full of shit. That's that's, that's what what it was. was. Right. Moving on from uh, ghost stories. (laughs) Real or incredibly imagined. And we are now going to discuss (laughs) a man who needs no introduction, Mr. Stephen King, um, probably the most widely read author we've ever encountered uh, on the disco, because we've all read so many of his books. He's a bestseller a million times over all around the world. Uh, His latest novel is called Dr. Sleep, and it's importantly a sequel to The Shining, his classic book from 1982, I believe. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. 1981? I think so. No. Somewhere no, in there. What am I saying? 70s? No. No. Jesus. Should have looked this Siri, up. Siri, when did The <laughs> Shining come out? First, you have to tell me where you are. Oh. Go to set. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't work. Huh. Guess that's not gonna. That's not an effective research tool, is it? So the shining. <laughs> let's let's just do a, a quick recap of the shining. I mean, I don't think any. We really need to do it because everyone knows. If not the Stephen King novel, then they know the movie starring Jack Nicholson that was directed by Stanley Kubrick. Very importantly, they have wildly different endings. They have very yes. different yeah. endings and different We're plot points. We're about to spoil throughout. the shining. The book. Yeah. Yes. So the shining. The book was. Uh, it's about a family that goes on a um, a winter stay at a hotel and. Danny Torrance is the kid in the book, and his father, Jack Torrance, um, is an alcoholic writer who's they're going off to the hotel to watch it over the winter, a completely empty hotel over the winter. 
it turns out Danny has something called The Shining, which is basically a psychic power that allows him to communicate with other people that have The Shining, but he also begins to be contacted by ghosts. And over the course of this winter, his father, Jack Torrance, goes crazy and is told by the hotel, by different forces and things in the hotel and different experiences, to kill his son um, and his wife, which ends in the hotel being burned down, but Dan... Danny and Wendy escape, and Dr. Sleep actually picks up only a couple months after they have escaped the Overlook burning down, and uh, continues Dan, Dan Torrance's life story all the way up into, well, I guess his 40s by the end of the book. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. the present day. Present day. And, you know, really, for me, what I, I appreciated about Dr. Sleep right away was that the, the Danny's shining thing in the shining to me was always the weakest part i loved the idea of a haunted house hotel story Mm -hmm. and it never quite made sense to me in both the book and the movie like why do we have to add a psychic kid on on, Mm -hmm. on top of already a scary cool creepy environment you know it didn't really seem to add much so i was really happy to see this whole concept of the shining which is a cool concept it just never felt right to me in the shining um see that expanded and um I thought expanded pretty well as a as an idea, like a system, yeah. a psychic system. I thought it was really. And a- as a person with a touch of The Shining, oh, I thought geez. it was really realistic. <laughs> well, okay, so here's how I is think that code of this- for alcoholism, though, because I think well, that's yeah. what he really means. So I think you. that he how dare you. When I started reading this book, and I, I know I talked about this recently, but if you're not caught up on our podcast, um, I, I met Stephen King a few months ago, and prior to that, I read like 15 Stephen King books in a really short period of time. And so maybe because of that experience or maybe because of what this book really is, I felt like Dr. Sleep was Stephen King, like a writer who's written a hell of a lot of books, cycling back on his favorite themes. Like to me, this book is... Every book in which there's an alcoholic, which is almost every single one, plus The Shining, plus Carrie, plus Salem's Lot. Yep. It's and, those... with, and with callbacks to all those things. There's also a mention of a character that's in one of his son's books that's out right now, um, which is interesting. So let's give a little plot synopsis. Uh, we get a quick summary of what Dan's life has been like post The Overlook. Um, and, you know, he and his mom live a relatively normal life but then somewhere in his 20s dan falls apart and becomes a raging alcoholic a drifter alcoholic his mom is dead and he really has lost his way and reaches rock rock bottom relatively early on in this novel and then he settles in this town in new hampshire and begins working in a hospice and then starts having visions of being contacted by a, a little girl with The Shining. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, the book is also telling the story of a group of older people. Well, old, really old people. Um, <laughs> Super old. Super older old than time. Gypsies, basically. Are, yeah, gypsies. Yeah, gypsies who are traveling America in campers and mobile homes. And they are kind of yeah they're gypsies actually that's a great description they need they're gypsy vampires essentially gypsy vampires they're people that have the shining different degrees of the shining and they go around finding children that are born with the shining younger people with the shining they contact them kidnap them and kill them torture them in horrific ways but they're able to drink their psychic power they drink their shining which they call the steam they call steam and that 
gives them the ability to live forever. So they're roaming America, kidnapping children, <laughs> eating yeah. them, and and containing their essence and canisters inside their their uh their rvs you know the the thing is i've always mistrusted people in rvs i feel like they're up to no good and this really codified that uh well you know hold on before you move on from that point i mean you're making a joke but i've, I've always thought that one of stephen king's greatest strengths is his ability to um pick weird subcultures or seemingly mm-hmm. harmless mm-hmm. things and make them terrifying. Yes, he's, absolutely. He's such a master of that because, I mean, Pet Cemetery. think about it. Like, it starts with a really friendly concept, right? Right. Like, we, we have a cemetery for our pets. That sounds really kind of sweet and cute. And yet, by the end of that book... It's the, horribly the, You could never say the phrase Pet cemetery without being chilled to the bone. Right. And I think that... This is another example, a classic example of Stephen King accomplishing that again, where he takes something innocuous, boring even, Mm -hmm. a group of older people in camper vans, and yet now I will never look at them the same. Because every time I pass a group of camper vans, if there are more than like two or three of them huddled around each other, I will be like, that's the true knot. Right. Out for no good. There's children in there. Yeah. And that's, that's what he's been able to do with things as simple as prom and cars and you know small town america small town america is now a place of great unbridled horror or clowns i don't think we had this fear of clowns culturally before Before stephen king made yeah i I mean i think there was already a little bit of a built-in weirdness but he just exploited it today yeah um here's something i now i like the book and i know we're going to get into way more detail but i want to say right up front something i don't find scary Jaunty top hats. No. <laughs> the sort of steampunky style to the whole thing. Yeah. The the, the leader of, of these drifters, they're called the, the True Knot, um, is a woman named Rose who wears a giant top hat. And so in my mind throughout the entire book, I just thought of four non-blondes. I, I, in my mind, it was four non-blondes abducting and killing small children for their essence, which <laughs> made it slightly less terrifying, but... You know, I'd never like for non-blondes anyway. I, I think the interesting thing about this book is that it's a sequel, but it, it really is not a sequel because mm-hmm. it's it. You don't you don't even have to have read The Shining necessarily to be party to this book to to enjoy it. I, I had some problems with the last third of the book, which which we can talk about. But you know, I think it's really a book about, and I found this somewhat um, troublesome about. The Twelve Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and about you know recognizing your demons and things like that. I mean, it's it's an obvious, clear theme. It's it's part of what happens in the book, um, but it's not a sequel in the sense that it's redoing The Shining, which is mm-hmm. I think what we anticipate now from sequels because that's what we want. We want something sort of like what we just read, but a little bit different. And this is not that same thing. I think. What was interesting about The Shining, specifically for me, and what maintains its horror, is that it was a very claustrophobic book. It's all inside of this hotel, and it's a place that you can't get to. It's enclosed in snow, and it's it's also enclosed in the man's mind. This book spans across the United States, um, and it's, it's about a lot of open spaces. And I think it's a different kind of horror, and it's a different kind of book entirely. Danny Torrance doesn't even necessarily you you he didn't need to be 
the kid who was in The Shining to be this man necessarily. I, I wanted more of The Shining references. I wanted more of his relationship with his father, which also, I mean, going back to the Alcoholics Anonymous theme, which was, was extremely heavy-handed, but I also found fascinating and, and, and kind of cool. I wanted... Yeah. I wanted that to be about his relationship with his father a little more overtly because it seemed important uh, having read The Shining and also having known, we should mention, that Stephen King is uh, an alcoholic who right. has been sober for, for the last uh, 15 years or 20 years and has said that The Shining was one of the books that he knew was... He, he, he barely remembers writing it, but he wrote about an alcoholic writer father who abused his children and mm -hmm. it was a book that he felt he was writing to himself to make himself more aware of what he was actually going through right he was a complete alcoholic of ignoring his children while he wrote his books and like i don't know the fact that he didn't tie it more explicitly to jack torrance's alcoholism yeah. kind of bothered well, me well i think that the shining is a book written by someone who's currently struggling with alcoholism and dr sleep is the version of that book written by someone 30 years beyond it. I mean, I, it's so clear to me. Like, he's he's learned his lessons. He's, you know, he still thinks about it on a day-to-day -day basis. As, but it still means it's kind of safe, right? It's safer than The Shining. Sure. I, I, I think it's absolutely safer. I mean, the I think... The moral universe is so much clearer than The Shining. Mm -hmm. The Shining, yeah. you're confused about who you're kind yeah. of rooting for. Yeah. And the characters are more muddled. This is a very black-and-white book. I mean... I feel like Stephen King's downfall, basically since he's been sober, is how Manichaean his universe has become. It's like, right away, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and we just gotta wait for them to assemble their teams. This is my party line on Stephen King with myself. It's like, he's an absolute genius at premise, and he, the premises he comes up with are so amazing, and then he himself doesn't even know how they're going to play out. Like, I feel like I I read this specifically about the stand. Like, he sets up all these characters, and then he's all excited, and then he, like, the plot just gets rolling, and once it hits, like, all action, then I'm pretty much, like, done with the book. I mean, I, I'm not saying I don't like it. I still enjoy it. But, so here are some things that I loved in the first third of this book, and I mean, flat out was terrified or very moved. I loved um, the psychic connection between him and a baby and a yes, child. Yes, I loved that too. I that thought was that was amazing. Unbelievable! Of like, how, if if a baby was accidentally psychically contacting you, what would it be like? Mm -hmm. All of those descriptions were just beautiful and unbelievable. And um, I loved Danny working in a hospice. Which, to get back to what you were saying before, Ryder, it's like. Whenever it gets really descriptive about what happened at the Overlook, I felt that it was, like, kind of forced and, like, weird and, you know, just plotty. But when you think about what would happen to Danny Torrance, um, someone with that strong of a shining who had that horrible of an experience, like, working in a hospice and being able to see when people were going to die and bringing them to their sleep, which is where the title of the book comes from, is an incredible idea and so mm -hmm. sad and mm -hmm. so beautiful. And um, some of... I won't give it away. That he's driven to be surrounded by death in a different form, I think yes. was a it's a great, right. great idea on Stephen King's part. Exactly. So, right. like, I was sad when that got... Like, literally, the hospice gets dropped because Danny is busy traveling around you know mm -hmm. so uh, i think that's exactly what happens is like he has all these great ideas and then and premises and descriptions and they're scary and they're creepy or they're moving and then to make the book 
able to have an ending, he has to start moving the characters together in a way that they probably wouldn't were they real people in any way. You know what I mean? I just want to talk about the Stephen King's ability to plot, which is so good. And I almost think it's too good. I think Stephen King, because I've, I've read pretty much everything. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of his early novels and a huge fan of his short stories, even his more recent short stories, because I feel like with a short story, he's freer to, to be negative and to destroy something and destroy a world or a character and then let it go and it can be darker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think he kind of went through a, a, a little bit of a crisis these last 10 years of in the writing in that he's become such a master of the form. Like, Did you guys ever read his short novel, The Colorado Kid? No. no. Okay, he did this short novel called The Colorado Kid and then he also, his last big novel was 112263 and mm. both of them are very interesting because they start with a with a a plot a very clear plot a clear character with a mission and then they become about how that doesn't work and in Colorado Kid it's a mystery it's a straight mystery and it's Stephen King screwing with you as a reader because he tells you up front you are never going to solve this mystery you will never know what happens but we're going to still, I'm going to give you the mystery and you're going to die to know what happens. And he's toying with his reader and it's so frustrating. And I loved this little book, but it was incredibly frustrating because it, it never told you what was happening or why this mystery happened. But you were still on the edge of your seat. And it was, to me, it was him doing an exercise in like, I can still get you. I can tell you from the moment you start this book that you will never get an answer to the questions I'm going to pose, but I will still get you completely involved in my characters and in the plotting as I go along. And then he, eleven twenty two sixty three. Is that, am I getting the date right? Yeah, yes. that's right. Okay. That that book I thought was incredibly interesting because it's, you know, he has this clear goal. I'm going to go back in time. There's time travel elements. I'm not ruining anything. And and also within the first 40 pages, his mission is stated, you're going to go back and, and, and stop Kennedy from being assassinated. And that mm -hmm. will be good for the world. But then for 400 pages, it becomes a love story. It becomes a story about him being a good teacher or him being, you know, it's crazy. And it just becomes a distraction from the plot. And I think Stephen King was playing with these ideas of becoming a different type of writer and what he could do and how talented he is as a writer. He was sort of riffing and like having these moments of like, I know what you really want, but let me fuck with you a little bit and see what else I can do. <laughs> and, 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 and I think it was a really interesting moment that didn't quite pay off in the sense that I don't know if people really noticed. I mean, I, I think he, with this book, is going back to a, a, a kind of Stephen King playbook, a Stephen yeah. King cliche plot. And it's not that it's bad, it's just familiar. And I, I, I wish I could, you know, sit and talk with him and have this conversation and say, like, go weirder, dude. Or even better, you know what I wish? I wish Stephen King would start a book, write the first hundred pages, and then give it to his son and say, finish this. <laughs> and you know what? I bet you his son would take it way out there and it would be this really weird interesting book as opposed to this sort of tidier safer because he he's he's too good at the form in a way he's like mastered yeah. the novel and he's he's already tried riffing in different versions he's given himself huge challenges like the girl who loved uh 
Tom, Tom Gordon. Gordon. Tom Gordon. You know, he gave himself the biggest challenge of the world. I'm just going to take a girl and get her lost in the woods for hundreds of pages. And it wasn't horrible, but it also didn't... I don't know. I mean, I finished the book. Like, I tore through it. But I didn't hit that sense of, like, this is something really fresh and really new. So I, I would encourage Stephen King to write shorter and to set himself higher challenges and let it go weirder and more experimental. Like, his shorter novellas. I, we've talked about different yeah. seasons on this podcast mm. oh, before, which to me is his masterpiece. And it's his masterpiece yeah. for two reasons. First, it's the only thing that only three things that he's written three of the four stories don't involve anything supernatural mm-hmm. at all they're just good stories so it's literary fiction at its best and then second of all i think he he really let it go somewhere unexpected and it was shorter and concise and they were about characters exploring something new and interesting and not knowing where it was going to take them as opposed to assembling the team to fight the forces of evil. <laughs> what ends you know, up happening to so many of his other books. You know what I kept thinking? Well, not kept thinking, but it occurred to me a couple times, is that the best Stephen King novel I'd read in a long time was Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And and yeah. it's and obviously there's there's a huge parallel he, in Crooked Letter Crooked Letter the character talks about having read a bunch of Stephen King books and different seasons plays a, a role in the book but it's it is that difference between writing the supernatural stuff versus the horror of just being a human being and I think that's that's that dividing line if he's just writing about what it's like to suffer the horror of being a human you, you know I think he he finds extraordinarily deep levels that he doesn't then have to figure out how to plot into horror, you know, how to solve the, the, the great monster that, that is at the end of it. I, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to write a horror story ever. I, I just don't know how to do it. And so I, I, I have no prescription for how he can do what he's created better. But I also think, man, you know, you, there's there's that playbook that you mentioned, and he hits those points over and over and over again, even stylistically. You know the things in the parentheticals, um, which is his style. But totally his style. Repetitive you know, parenthetical. Yeah, that repetitive right. parenthetical thing. I just think now as a reader, I'm aware of him writing it, which is yeah. different than I was, you know, when I was mm-hmm. a kid reading it. So there's, there's that too. Very conscious colloquialization of language. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God. Everybody's like Danny boy, D dog, or like he has these like really uh, a lot of swearing. At, at no point, point by the way, no, 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 is no, the term D dog used. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's always this like over characterization of dialogue, like where yeah. it's like somebody is introduced, a character is introduced, and they have like the one phrase that they keep returning yeah. to, and it's just. It's it, it's it's good writing actually, but because it's so Stephen Kingy, it's become a cliche. Yeah. You know, you're well, aware. and yeah. this this time I had an experience that I have never had with the Stephen King book before because all my favorite Stephen King novels were written in the '80s. So I was a child, and the colloquializations and references like they're they could they might as well be a hundred years ago to me. <laughs> this book, no, I agree. Same this way. book refers to The Hunger Games, uh-huh. Harry Potter. Like TV shows that I've seen, and I found that very jarring. I was like, "Oh my god, all Stephen King books are this dated." I'm just living in the era. Like, I I, I felt like, "Oh my god, Stephen King and I were reading the same books a couple of years ago." Weird, totally. you know. <laughs> and that's a very right. strange, strange feeling. So I I mean I I happen to know this from reading his column in Entertainment Weekly, but uh, Stephen <laughs> King. 
um, has been reading, and this goes back to my earlier point, a hell of a lot of YA, which is mm. um, very focused. Sense. Yeah, this is a YA novel. Like, this is a YA novel inside of a Stephen King novel. Did you guys feel uh, that at a certain point? Yeah. A 13-year-old yep. girl who's actually the hero, who's actually the most empowered, who's actually the strongest... Um, and I hated he, that aspect. I wanted Danny to be the leader. Like I wanted him to turn out to be the most powerful. But instead, it was all felt very safe and like we just have to control the little naive, perfect hero wizard girl. Like, well, I, I like that she. Um, <laughs> I, it's the I, same I, problem with the Lord of the Rings. Like, oh, Frodo! Why? Why oh, no. is Frodo such a big deal? Just because he's there and he carries the ring and doesn't put it on. Shut Todd up! Like, happening. give me a real thing. Here, here it goes. Here we go. <laughs> wow. I thought marriage was going to soften I hated him. Harry Potter too. Sorry guys. I can't stand Harry Potter. I can't stand any naive perfect hero. It give me a flawed interesting character. Don't give me the perfect innocent. That is a bad that's bad story writing. It's great for kids because you can put yourself in their shoes, but you know, let's write for adults. Like come on. No. Well, so wait, do you, do you believe adults shouldn't read YA? <laughs> Stop. Stop. I don't think I... children should read YA. How about that? <laughs> I don't think we should categorize it. <sighs> you know what was good was when they when they burned books. I like that. <laughs> Get back to that. Burn any a book kid, with a 12-year-old. They made us read books backwards, and we liked it. <laughs> Everything was read like the Torah. <laughs> books were books. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us next time as we tackle essays on nature, in particular, essays about animal rage, whales, monkeys, and bears. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and join our Goodreads page. Thanks for listening.